Well, last week's sermon talked about the glorious return of King Jesus. And the language in the passage spoke of Jesus' return as coming with a cry of a military command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. And then Paul concluded last week's passage with the command that all of us, not just pastors, but all of us are to encourage one another with that truth of the Lord's return. In this week's passage, Paul continues that same discussion, though he's going to use different language rather than speaking of the return of Jesus with the sound of a trumpet. He's going to speak of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a common phrase in the Old Testament that the prophets were looking forward to, the day of the Lord. But regardless of the language that's used, what we're going to see is that Paul ends the passage in the exact same way, with the command that all of us are to encourage each other with the Lord's return, with the day of the Lord. So that's what I hope we can do for each other, and that's what I hope in miniature this sermon will be for us. So this summer we've been going through First Thessalonians. We're going to continue going through a few more weeks through First Thessalonians, and then we'll get into chapter, excuse me, the Second Thessalonians, the three chapters of that uh, as we get later August and then on into September. So we're in chapter five this morning, verses one through eleven. So if you have a Bible. Uh, I encourage you to turn there and hold it open throughout the time. I'm going to be more in the details, per se, than I am maybe on other given weeks. Uh, But otherwise, it'll be on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher. Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus write, Now concerning the times and the seasons, that is times and seasons of the Lord's return, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness. Brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me as we study it in more detail. Heavenly Father, your word is, as we just sang, a word of power. Words that can never fail. 
And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to build up your church till the world is filled of your glory. Well, that's, that's what we're praying for. That's what we're doing here in this moment is to build, asking you to build into us the truths we need to be the kind of people you desire us to be so that your world would be more and more in an increasing way and once in its finality, a, a world that's full of your glory. So to that end, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's not impossible to forget things that are really important. And typically, when we forget something really important, it usually happens slowly at first. I've told the story before about my plane tickets and the honeymoon that my wife and I went on. At the time, the place we went to, you didn't need a passport. You needed a passport or a birth certificate, and some, which I knew, but somewhere in that engagement season of graduating school, finding a new job, moving to a new city, uh, getting the wedding planned, I sort of just forgot something really important. <laughs> that is, until I showed up, we showed up at Miami International Airport, and the kind woman uh, collecting tickets said we would not be going anywhere if we didn't have a passport or a birth certificate, and I had neither. (laughs) That was an expensive lesson. We did get to go on standby the next day, but we did lose that night of the hotel that we'd already paid for. But it's not impossible to forget things that are really important, and again, it usually happens slowly at first. To say it without the double negative, it's possible to forget things really important. The Old Testament, there's this story of the people of God when they just sort of, I don't know how to say this, lost the book of the law, it's called. Uh, Kings chapter, 2 Kings chapter 22. We don't know exactly what the book of the law refers to, whether it was um, just the book of Deuteronomy or perhaps the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch. But somewhere along the way, they just sort of lost Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they just lost it. Until this king named Josiah, he's going to do some renovations on the temple. And the priest, I don't, I don't know if you know, they're clearing out things. And they're like, what's this book or scroll? And they realize we'd lost the Bible. I don't know if you knew even that that story is in there. And they begin reading the Bible and they're cut to the heart. And they go, we haven't been doing any of this or most of this at least. And we're going to start today. That's what they said. And some groups who call themselves Christians and some buildings that call themselves churches, they've lost the Bible today. But that's not just a problem for those out there somewhere. For those of us who purportedly take the Bible seriously, it's possible for all of us to slowly stop talking about something that's important. And the glorious return of King Jesus is just such a thing. Again, it's not just a problem for those out there. It can happen to us. It happened to me. You know, as a pastor, I'll find myself frequently, perhaps more frequently than others, saying the gospel in a shorthand kind of phrasing. So gospel in shorthand, whether I'm writing something or I'm speaking in church in a sermon or at home or in a Bible study, I'll speak of the gospel as the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, 
the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus to the throne of the universe where he extends forgiveness to anyone who would come to him. And then I'd sort of stop. And all of that's true. It's just incomplete. It's missing something really important. About a year and a half ago, the president of our church denomination was just visiting some pastors in the area and was, had a dinner together. And so we went over to this dinner at West Shore. And uh, after the dinner, there was this Q&A with the president of our denomination. And he's talking. And I don't remember the question. And I don't remember even which pastor asked the question. But somewhere in the course of answering the question, the president of our denomination spoke of the gospel in shorthand. And he said, the life death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the throne of the universe and his second coming. And I just thought to myself, oh, (laughs) I don't know how it happened or when it happened, but slowly I just sort of stopped saying that part. Not that I didn't believe it. Just slowly forgot about something really important. And after last week's sermon, a person came up to me, which was throughout the week, um, and last week's sermon was probably the most sustained focus in any sermon I've given in the last five years, because probably it's the most sustained focus of any passage I've preached in the last five years about the return of Jesus. But this Christian came up to me and said that that sermon was for him, like listening to a song that he used to love but never hears anymore. There are some of you who come to our church and you've been walking with Jesus for years, decades even, and you've been around long enough to see different emphases, emphases, I guess, shift over time. And some of those shifts are good. Sometimes we recover things that get obscured that aren't obscured in the Bible, but for whatever reason we miss them and so they get recovered. And that's a good thing. But other times, as with a vibrant expectation of the return of Jesus, good things can wrongly fade over time. We still believe them. We just don't talk about them as much anymore. Why do you think... We talk less about the return of Jesus these days. I mean, I don't have any proof written here necessarily, but I just tell you that in my opinion, and others have said similar things in the, what, the way we sing, the songs that are on the radio, the things we mention in Bible studies, the words that we speak of encouragement to each other in hospitals, the sermons that we preach perhaps, the way we speak of the gospel in shorthand, has over time drifted from an emphasis on, a vibrant emphasis on the Lord's return to other things. Why? Why do you think that is? It's an open-ended question. I don't have research per se, I'll just give you my pastoral opinion on two reasons perhaps that are part of it. One of them, I think, is that our aversion to speaking about the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord or our overreactions to abuse. To some Christians, to some Christians, everything about the end times is just so clear. They have charts, Every detail of the book of Revelation is mapped out with such clarity. They're obscure 
prophecies from the book of Revelation or Ezekiel or Daniel, and they're just so clear that some of us, we listen to that and we go, it just feels a little too contrived, perhaps. And so we wrongly overcorrect by ignoring. That's one reason, perhaps. Here's another. I think the second reason we have tended to drift from speaking about the Lord's return is our affluence. In our wealth, we don't need a second coming coming of the Lord Jesus. We don't have to pray for daily bread because we go to the store and get bread. Bread comes from the store, not God, right? Wrong. But the further distance we have from calamities, like the, the, the feeling, the weight of weight, a calamity would wipe out a crop and the connection that is to daily bread and our intimate connection with the Lord and our dependence upon him, the further that gets removed, I think our affluence removes us from thinking deeply about the Lord's return. Just for a moment, think about this. That we can go to the store and buy 100 different types of cheese. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll go to the store and I'll just stand in front of the dairy section, the cheese section. And I think I'm probably more fascinated by this because I can't eat any of it. When I stand there, because it would kill me, not, not, not right away, but slowly, if I had enough of it, I think, um, I would die. A hundred different types of cheese. There is pepper jack cheese that comes in shredded pepper jack cheese. There's cubed pepper jack cheese. There's sliced pepper jack cheese. There's even, or there's blocks of pepper jack cheese, and there's even, this was on our table at dinner the other night, I didn't have any of it, but I saw it and I read the package, and it said traditional cut pepper jack cheese. If you know what that is, it's basically shredded cheese that's fat, so it's like thickly shredded cheese. And so I'd bring that up in some ways to be silly, but some way to just typify, the affluence we have is such that I can drive to five grocery stores from 15 minutes here at this church and have 100 different choices on cheese. Who needs Jesus to come make the world a better place, right? Who needs a savior when we have prosperity to usher in the new heavens and the new earth? Things will just be lived up and to the right. Well, we should thank God for cars and planes and central air and mass-produced clothing and the internet and penicillin and MRIs. We should thank God for all of these things. But they're not God. And even if our affluence has made our vibrant hope and expectancy of the Lord's return dull, it is the return of Jesus on the great day of the Lord when the trumpet sounds that gives Christians our only true hope. At least that's what Paul says in this passage. So let's get into it in more detail. I said this already. But we're going to really get into some of the specifics. Perhaps I always want to get into specifics, but maybe even a little bit more so this morning than other Sundays. The things I want to talk about first are what truths are Paul, is Paul teaching here in this passage? What, what is he saying that's true? And then how do we live in light of it? That's, that's, that's kind of the framework here for the rest of the sermon. And the way I want to get into the truths Paul's talking about is to use the phrase, the already and not yet. Now that, that will be a foreign concept to many of you. You might not, I mean, you, you might have heard like it in principle, but just never heard that language before. I took a survey, I won't do it this service, but during first service, it looked like only about 20% have heard Christians talk about the already and not yet. So that will be different here by the end of the sermon. 
many theological concepts, they, they come to us in fancy words, right? So there's soteriology, the study of salvation. There's hermeneutics, it's another fancy word, which means the art and science of studying the Bible well. There's propitiation, which means the absorbing of God's wrath in the person of Jesus so that for Christians there's nothing left. He's, he is our propitiation. He's like a sponge. That would be a less technical <laughs> term, probably more helpful. But it's talked about in verses 9 and 10 of this passage. There's exegesis. That's another fancy word. That means to take out from the Bible. So, so we exegete text. That's what we're supposed to be doing rather than eisegete text, which is to put things into the Bible. There's all these fancy words. I could keep going. But the already and not yet doesn't sound so fancy, does it? It's not very impressive. Not very impressive sounding. But just like these other words, not that the word itself is important, but the reality it communicates is pretty important. The already and not yet is a way of speaking about what God has already begun to do in the gospel and what he's promising to do at the end of time in a way that is bigger and better. It's a way of saying that Christians are already saved. We're already saved, but we'll be saved in the future too. Explain. I'm not just bringing this up to be confusing or to teach you fancy Christian lingo. I really think if we would lose either one of these in our understanding of Christianity, if we lose the already or we lose the not yet, we'll become despondent. If God hasn't already begun to work, I'm showing the passage where it says that, we would despair. And if he's not going to do something better than he's already doing right now, we would despair. We'd have to make heaven here on earth. So this isn't irrelevant. It's not just pastor speak. Look with me at verse 8. In verse 8 we read this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So lots of things to point out at this verse. It'll just be up there for a minute on the screen. But if you have a Bible, just keep it, keep it open and point out a number of things. So first Paul says, quote, we belong to the day. Now, that, that's a metaphor. Light and daytime are metaphors for living in holiness. Just as at another place in the passage, Paul speaks of darkness and night times. And those are metaphors for living in sin. Notice specifically what Paul says. He says that we, quote, belong to the day. That is, right now, to be a Christian is to be someone who's been changed. Right now, if you're a Christian, your chief identity is not in the sinful things you did in high school or last week. Your chief identity right now is that you belong to the Lord. And you belong to the Lord in such a way that what characterizes the Lord of light and holiness can be said to be true of you right now. You, Paul writes, belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. We are children of the day, children of the light, verse 5. This is the already. Christians, right now, you belong to the Lord. Another place we see the already, it's not here in verse 8, but it's in verse 1 and verse 4. It's this language of brothers. If we, we're using the English Standard Version of the Bible to preach from here. And so the first time that's used in verse 1, there's a little footnote that at the bottom it says, when he says brothers, he means brothers and sisters. But Paul wasn't, 
related to any of these people. Like they, they weren't his flesh and blood brothers and sisters. But, but, but what, when we call someone our brother and sister, who, what, who do we do that for? We do it to people who have the same father, right? Those who have the same father. But yet, in a very natural sense, Paul didn't have that with these Thessalonican believers. But what Paul's saying, by using this language of brother, brother and sister, what he's encouraging them is that right now, they are in a relationship with God the Father in such a way that all of them, them and us and Paul, for that matter, all have God as our Father. That is an already type of truth. And one of the things that just jumped out to me this week is I, we keep stumbling through each passage and looking at it closely, closely here in 1 Thessalonians is that 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, for that matter, have the highest density of that phrase brother in any of the letters that Paul uses. So more than any other letter to any other church, Paul writes to these Christians to say, right now you're part of the family of God. So the persecutions they had experienced in their life for the gospel, the fact that like last week as I talked about, perhaps some in their congregation had died. Despite all of that, Paul says, right now you're part of God's family. He's adopted you into his forever family. Notice the language in verse 8, going back to verse 8 again. There's this language of having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Having put on. Having put on. That's already type language. Paul's speaking of something that's true right now. Now, what do we make of this breastplate and helmet? What's that about? There's an Old Testament allusion where something like that's spoken about. And then some of you will be familiar with Ephesians chapter 6 where there's those things that are talked about, the breastplate and the helmet, and there's other things. There's a shield of faith. and I don't want to go into any of that, but I just want to say these are metaphors again. They're not an actual breastplate. There's not, you know, every time this gets taught at youth group, they bring some kid on stage, right? And they put on an actual breastplate and they put on a helmet and it's labeled something. Now that's, that's how you teach these things. Uh, and that's fine. But, but what we need to recognize, these are metaphors. Just like children of the day, children of the light, breastplate and helmet are metaphors. We see that even in the specific language that's used when he says, for a helmet the hope of salvation. So it's not an actual helmet, but as though it were a helmet, for a helmet, you're protected with the hope of salvation. You see, back in the day, if we were traveling through Thessalonica or Asia Minor and we came to Thessalonica and we saw a group of men standing somewhere and they had breastplates on and a helmet and they were looking tough, we would immediately recognize that those th- just with those details alone, we'd be able to say, these are Roman soldiers. One of the chief aspects of their identity is that they're Roman soldiers. What Paul is doing is he's grabbing chief identity, like characteristics of a Christian that are true right now, that should be visible from the outside, and say, these things typify you as Christians, true right now. There's that classic trio that Paul uses, faith, hope, and love. All that to say, I've been saying a lot. Right now, Paul's point, is already your children of the light, your children of the day, Brothers and sisters, because you have the same Father, and you have already put on salvation. But look at what he says now in verses 9 and 10. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In verse 8, Paul spoke of Christians as having already put on the helmet of salvation. It's already done. But here in verse 9, we read that as Christians, we are those destined to obtain salvation. Like there's a destiny of sorts that's happened right now, but the salvation in its fullness is coming later. There's an, a not yet aspect of our salvation. So which is it, Paul? Is it already salvation here or is it not yet here? It's both. Our salvation is something we begin to enjoy in this life. But it's something we will only experience in its fullness in the life to come. That's why Paul says, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. That's Paul's way of saying that whether we're alive when Jesus comes back, awake, or whether we've already died in Christ, therefore asleep, we will, Paul says, live with him. We will live with him. In the future, in its fullness, we will live with Christ. That's good news. We are saved and we will be saved from God's wrath. It means that no matter what happens in your life, what happened last week or what what happened in your life in this coming week, if you have put on faith and hope and love in the gospel, not one ounce of God's wrath will ever touch you. We do need to be saved from God's wrath, though. This is a real thing. Look back with me at the beginning of the passage, verses 1 through 3, where Paul speaks of it. Now, concerning the times and seasons of the Lord's return, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. Again, Paul's saying, I've already taught you this when I was there, but I'm just going to say it again because it's easy to forget. It's easy to slowly drift from remembering something really important. So he's writing to you. You don't need me to write you again, but obviously it's a letter written to them, so he's writing again. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security. Implied, surely we don't need the Lord to come. Then sudden destruction will come upon them, Paul writes. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. God warns that while people are flouting peace and security in this world, while people say, we have prosperity as our salvation, we have a hundred different types of cheese. Paul says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and with it will come destruction. There's a harsh edge to the return of Christ in the day of the Lord. Whenever the day of the Lord was spoken about in the Old Testament, there's both a blessing to it for God's people, but there's a harshness to it as well. I wonder if that troubles you. The return of the Lord and the wrath of God. I wonder how you feel about that. The wrath of God can be a difficult topic to talk about even in church. But I'd encourage you to think about it in this way. All of us have a longing for justice. 
We all want there to be justice. Now, we may not agree on how that's defined or how that works itself out in particular circumstances, but we all have hardwired within us this longing for justice. I like to work out at the gym at the Friendship Center. Remember, it's I'm pointing this way. It's just down 22. And at the gym, they always have Sports Center on or ESPN constantly on one TV. Then on this middle TV, they always have C-SPAN. And I don't know why it's always on, but it feels like Judge Judy is on all day. Uh, I don't, I don't, if she, I don't know really if she's on all day or not, but it feels like it. She's always on, at least when I'm there. And it feels like, at least as I watch C-SPAN, I'm just reading kind of the, you know, between sets of whatever, the, the subtitles, it feels like people are just constantly crying out for justice. Who had done the latest wrong and what's going to be done about it? Now, you might not prefer C-SPAN as your favorite political outlet, but I would submit to you that probably your favorite political outlet functions in the same way. When we speak of the wrath of God, what we're speaking about is that one day the Lord will leave no wrong unaccounted for. God's goodness requires him to feel a certain way about injustice. If he was just aloof and didn't care, well, that would be something terrible. It would just be anarchy and Mike makes right. And there would be no reason that any of us wouldn't do whatever we wanted at any moment. And this truth is meant to be an encouragement to a suffering people. But again, in an affluent society, we perhaps talk less of this and see it less immediately as an encouraging thing but for those of us who have um, functioned in this society as minorities or have been a parts of other societies we have many people who have traveled you hear from other countries they feel this more as good news more apparently than perhaps we do let's say it this way if I come home after church and my house is just five minutes away, walk home, and my house has been vandalized beyond repair. I would feel a certain way towards that. What this truth is saying is that God feels a certain way about his world being torn apart, about mass shootings that take place. What this passage says is that God will not overlook wrongdoing ultimately there is a not yet that will be an um, a justice that's meted out in this world so what does that mean there that is a heavy thing which i think is why paul then leads to speaking about soberness that christians aren't just bubbly and giggly and happy and full of glib smiles There's a soberness to the Christian life. Look at what Paul says in verses 6 and 11. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. As Christians, we live between the already and the not yet. Which means that in this in-between time, there is a so then, verse 6, and a therefore, verse 8. If what is gloriously true of us now will be more gloriously true of us at the end of time, that in the meantime, what that means is we have work to do. 
Paul taught that a vibrant awareness about the return of King Jesus should motivate us to activity. That cliche that someone is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, I guess it could be true of someone, but that's certainly not what Paul is advocating for here. A heavenly mindedness is supposed to propel us to be of earthly good. A vibrant awareness is the opposite of being asleep. Being spiritually asleep is being inactive. It means to lay around and be drowsy and unaware. Maybe that's a good description of many Christians as those who are sleepwalking rather than being sober. Instead, what Paul challenges us to do in this passage is be encouraging to one another and be active in building one another up. That language of building up is construction language. It takes effort and work and the rolling up of sleeves. It makes a mess, too. <laughs> I don't know any good church that's not, in different ways, also a mess. Because they're building one another up. People are in process. When we renovated this building a year and a half ago, there were many weeks I thought, good night, this is a huge mess. There was several months where, um, partly to hide, but partly because it was the cleanest place I could find, I found a janitor's closet in the basement. (laughs) And that became my office uh, for about six weeks. Because everything was just a mess. You couldn't go anywhere in, in the building and not hear like a saw going, you know, like, ugh. Because this building was being built up. It was being renovated. It was in the not yet, so to speak. What are the things in your life that make you spiritually sleepy? What are the things that dull your senses to the beauty of the gospel and dull your awareness of the vibrant expectancy of the Lord's return? It's an open-ended question. I'll submit to you that one thing might be, it's not really preaching in a sense to the choir because you're all here this morning, but I would say failing to gather regularly with God's people is one of those things. As we consume hours of entertainment throughout the week, failing then or neglecting the recalibration that is the local church to encourage us, to build us up, to sober us, is one way we can become spiritually sleepy. Another way is that even if we come to church to not know anyone, You'll notice that phrase, the passage, it ends, encourage one another, build up one another, one another, one another. We can come to church and come as isolated Christians who come and leave and don't speak to anyone. Paul's encouragement to us would be that that God would build us up as a community of believers, which probably means we need to be involved in each other's lives more than just on Sunday mornings. And many of us are doing this so well. I I think I could say in many cases what Paul says here of this church at the end of verse 11. um, Encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. We're doing this, but Lord, help us to do it more. Let me close just stressing Paul's main point again. If I could say it, because I was jumping around, lots of things were said. Let me say it in one more paragraph and then illustrate what he's trying to get us to do. 
Here's what Paul's saying. No matter how big the mess in your life, the mess in our lives, if we are already right now in Christ, then our future is very bright. No cancer, no career failure, no wayward child, no crippling financial heartbreak, no addiction, no scheme of the evil one will be able to overthrow your destiny. That's what that word means. God says that you are not destined for wrath. Therefore, if you are in Christ and you're experiencing hard times, one thing it cannot mean is wrath. It might mean other things. Like God is training you or the evil one is after you or whatever it might mean. It doesn't mean that it's wrath. It can't mean that because Christians are not destined for it. In this life or the life to come, What we are destined for is salvation and joy and life that is truly life. And that knowledge should make a difference now. That's Paul's main point. This last winter, my family and I, we had the privilege of going on vacation. It was kind of an extended family reunion sort of thing in Florida. And on Christmas Eve, we were... At Bush Gardens, an amusement park. It was very strange for me to be at an amusement park in Florida uh, on Christmas Eve. It was, it, was, it, was, it was good. It was also strange um, to not be here at, at church. But I remember this one point. We're waiting in line. It's the end of the day. Uh, I'll just say my youngest son had been screaming at different moments throughout the day. And at this particular moment was wailing. <laughs> And we're in this line, and when I say line, don't picture like kind of the, the tight shoulder-to-shoulder cattle herd, you know, line where you go this way and then you go this way. Picture this sprawling line. It's kind of loose. So maybe eight, ten feet wide. Um, there's ropes. There's not hard metal, you know, barriers. And now, this detail makes a difference. Because it's pretty obvious those people way up in the front are way up in front compared to you. It's not so obvious when you're kind of looking around at the people around you as you're kind of moving forward, who's in front of who? Again, my son is wailing. And so we see people get on the train and they get off the train and then there's a sign, this is how long it's going to take and, and they come in 20 minute shifts. Ugh. And so we look at the, I look at the woman who's, who's standing there working, she's got her shirt on and I say, what are the chances we get on this next one? Now, she looks at us <laughs> And says, well, I'm not sure. It's usually right about right here that the cutoff happens. <laughs> and again, wah, wah. I'll tell you this. When the woman said that, I made eye contact with another woman who was with her family. And immediately, kind of this kind of frustration we were all experiencing went to immediate panic. And all of us who were in kind of this loose formation of a line started jockeying for a position. <laughs> we started, like, they weren't just in line together. We were competitors with one another to see who was going to make the cutoff. And our stress went through the roof. Her words unleashed an anxiety upon all of us. And we did get on the train, and there's plenty of room. I don't know what she was thinking. <laughs> but let me ask this. What if this would have happened instead? 
What if this employee would have said, I know you are not yet on the ride, but I've counted the number of seats on the ride, and I've counted the number of people in line, and trust me, it is as though you are already on that train. You're going to make it. Just think how that would have, rather than the infighting and the pressure and the competition and the jockeying for position, how the stress would have just melted away and we could have enjoyed those next few minutes. I think that's what Paul is saying to all of us here in this passage. If you are in Christ, it is though we can say with supreme confidence, you're on that train bound for glory. We're not there yet, but we are going. And that is what Paul wants to encourage us with. And that's what he wants all of us to encourage each other with. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we close in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, there are competing tensions in our hearts as Christians, we read the scriptures and we feel the joy of salvation, the cool breeze of forgiveness, the hallelujah, so to speak. And yet we also read the scriptures and we realize that this life is still one marked with suffering and trials and hard times and we read faithful men and women throughout the scriptures at times cry out, How long, O Lord? Lord, between that day and this day, would you make us those people who build each other up and encourage us with the truth that if we are in Christ, our future is bright. We pray this in Christ's name.